from digitiki.com. Native carving. Oh, it's one of those ancient tiki Aloha, welcome. I've got my Mai Tai. This is your host, Digitiki, coming to you direct from digitiki.com. And I want to give it a big thank you to the Islanders who just happened to be walking by at that time. Gave me a word of congratulations. Thank you, guys. Um, By the way, I, I can't believe it. This is the 100th episode. Can you believe it? I want to give a huge mahalo to all of you who have supported the show some of you from almost from day one I've said it before and I'm going to say it again I never thought the show was going to be this popular I never shot the sh- thought the show was going to go to a hundred and here we are and I'm going to keep going so I'm not ending at a hundred we're still going because I've got so many ideas in my head uh, so thank you all I've got to talk to some really amazing people I've got to know some amazing people because of the show uh, I've got to play some wonderful music. I've got to show some of you some wonderful music, which is very exciting for me to get the chance to share it with you. And then I've had some of you that actually shared music with me and I didn't know about, so it was really great. And I've gotten, some of you have gotten to be really good friends with, and um, thank you. Thank you. Mahalo. It, it's just phenomenal, and I'm, I'm so happy to be here and happy to keep going. Got a little bit of news before we get into this really, really cool show you're going to love. First little bit of news. So the 100th episode, I wanted to do something special, and, you know, that old saying of Polynesian paralysis kind of kicked in. I just had too many Mai Tais, and I didn't do anything, and I, I didn't know what to do. And Eric October, really phenomenally talented artist, I got to tell you, he designed the logo for the show, Um. He came to me and said, if you don't have an idea, I've got an idea. And boy, he had a great idea. So what we're going to do is we're going to do 100 coconut-shaped mug shot shot mugs. They're the size of a shot. They're little, so they're not going to break the bank. We're not going to do like a $100 mug or something like that. So it's a little, it's, it's so cool. It looks like a little brown coconut, but on the front, it has the logo for Quiet Village Podcast. On the back, it says 100th episode, and here's the cool part. The first 100 of these that you order, you can get them customized with your name on it. Each one of these mugs is handmade by Eric October. They're, they are not, uh, they're not mass-produced. They are handmade so when he pulls them he can actually etch your name or your tiki handle you know if your name is like tiki joe or tiki bob or whatever he can do that uh into your mug so um 
It's super cool. I love them. They are just adorable. So you can actually pre-order because these are handmade. So it's going to take just a little bit of time. So don't worry. Uh, but you can pre-order yours right now at digitiki.com and go to the Quiet Village gift shop. You can see the pictures of the prototype, which that's what the final version is going to look like. And Eric etching a name in there for you so you can kind of see what it's like. You can order yours. And as soon as yours is is fired and comes out of the kiln, it's going to be on its way to you. And, and you can do that right now at digitiki.com in the gift shop. Check it out. Okay, moving on. Let's do the show now. Let's just get on to the show. Now, this is a very, very special show because this is an interview with somebody that I've wanted to do an interview for so long, but I couldn't because, sadly, he passed away. But he's back. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're going to do an interview with Martin Denny. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to be cheesy and take a, a pre-recorded interview and just insert myself into that. But um, I want to give a huge, huge shout-out to Mike Skinner. And you can see Mike Skinner on Facebook. He is uh, the proprietor of the Caruso Society. They do all kinds of cool vintage postings about uh, vintage tiki. He sent me this file and said, you have got to hear this. And it was Martin Denny, a, a, a rather lengthy interview recorded in 1984. So this is post his big career so he talks about a lot of stuff in here and i just thought you know what what the heck i'm gonna play the whole darn thing uh this was from uh oh gosh i don't have the file in front of me i think it's the bank of hawaii did this so i'm just gonna play the whole thing so you know i would love to be able to interview martin denny for this show i'd love to be able to interview les baxter and my uh my 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 big guy who got me into it arthur lyman um, and of course, Gene Rains, but sadly, I can't do any of those guys, but I can at least get you an interview with Martin Denny. So let's get started before we go any further. Aloha, everyone. Mahalo for being here and welcome to the 100th Quiet Village. Here is none other than Martin Denny. Aloha and welcome as Station Aloha and Bank of Hawaii present the Heritage Series, stories of Hawaii's foremost musical artists. And ranking among those at the very top is the man who made exotica a household word in homes all the way from America to, well, Zanzibar. But where did those exotic sounds actually come from? <laughs> you might be surprised. Let's listen to the Honolulu Skylark special guest, Martin Denny. We signed a six-month contract to open the Shell Bar January 1st, 1956. It was at that time we introduced the exotic sounds. I've told this story many, many times because if you ever, anybody remembers the the old Shell Bar, it was a very exotic setting uh, and was exposed. There wasn't, at that time, it wasn't glassed in. And there was a little pool of water right outside, right next to the bandstand, and they had these Buffo frogs, you know, <laughs> ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. And uh, this one night we were playing, and we were all decked. Oh, and by this time I had talked Alfred into letting me get it to to increase the budget and to get Augie Cologne. So Augie came back and joined us. So there were just the four of us at this point instead of a trio. Mm -hmm. And of course, 
this added a lot to the character of the band. Well, one night we were playing this thing, and I suddenly became aware of these frogs croaking. Uh, this big buffo, ribbit, ribbit. And it was uncanny. You know, when we stopped playing, they stopped croaking. So I said, you know, this couldn't be true. Let's try it again a little later on. And I did, and they start croaking. And as a gag, Augie and and uh, and Arthur and so and and John started to do some of these bird calls. I mean, you know, like we were in the jungle somewhere, and everybody cracked up. It was so funny. I mean, well, the following day, somebody walked up to me and said, "Mr. Denny, would you do that arrangement you did with the frogs and the birds?" <laughs> and I said. I, I was I had to, did a double take, and then it suddenly dawned on me, you know, that it was very, this was a gag, you know. But it did make sense, you know, because it had a characteristic about it. So at a rehearsal the next day or so, I, I said, look, let's keep that sound in. You all do the bird calls, but do wait about four measures or so, and everyone do a different call. And I got myself uh, what they call uh, this little tube, it, was, it had ridges in it. Uh, and uh, when you rubbed a pencil or a piece of metal over it, it, it would vibrate and make a sound just like a frog. It'd go, ribbit, ribbit. And I'd hold it next to the microphone, and it sounded just like the real thing. Well, that's we kept getting these requests. Night after night, they wanted to hear the birds and the frogs. So that's how that started. I mean, that particular thing, what is now called Quiet Village.
tell me a little bit about growing up, Martin Denny. Well, I was born in New York City, uh, and my folks moved to Chicago This in the, in the 20s, in the early 20s, and then migrated to California in 1928. So I spent most of my formative years in California. I started studying uh, music at, I guess, about the age of 10. I played classical piano at the time. The uh, My teacher at that time was a graduate of Juilliard. So I guess secondhand, I might say that I've been to Juilliard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was very precocious in those days, and uh, my father had aspirations for me being a concert pianist. But fate took a put a hand in there and took care of that. I came very close to coming here in 1936, uh, but through circumstance, I didn't arrive until 1954. Hmm. Well, my first association with Hawaii goes back to a theme song that I played in a band in the 30s when I was down in South America. Now, curiously enough... Our opening theme song was Song of the Islands. And then we signed off with Aloha Oi. And this, of course, this was years before I ever dreamed that, that I'd ever come to the islands. How did you learn the songs? Well, in those days, Song of the Islands and uh, Aloha Oi was internationally known. It was a part of our repertoire. So it was something that we learned. As a matter of fact, one of the boys in the band had been to Hawaii and it was at his suggestion that we did these tunes. And they were great tunes. They still are, you know. Uh, but uh, curiously enough, uh, when I came back from my trip to South America, I'd been, I went down there with a band during the Depression, and I spent about four and a half years down there. And what had started out to be just a six-month contract in Bogota, Colombia, uh, was extended and, until... Uh, about four and a half years later before I came back to the States. And uh, when I came back, it was like starting from scratch. And I joined a band. Now, curiously enough, uh, his name was Giggy Royce. Now, Giggy was a legend here uh, in the islands. And, and uh, during uh, World War II, he played at the Alexander Young Hotel, which is right down the street from your studio. And uh, we, we were playing, uh, I went up, with a band, we had a terrific band. It was about 12 men. And uh, Giggy uh, was slated to come with the band to come back to Honolulu to play at the Alexander Young Hotel. But for some reason or other, uh, the bookings got confused and it wound up that they canceled it out and Del Courtney played the gig himself. Now, after all those years, now, as Dell is appearing here, as you know, and we talked about this, you know, and he was about my age, more or less. And uh, so Giggy asked me if I'd like to come back. That was in 1936. Well, I said, well, Giggy, I don't know about it. I just got back from South America, and I've been lost for four and a half years, and I don't want, little dreaming, I, I never heard of, the islands before except in the, in the geography book and so I, I said I'll pass on it so uh, coincidentally it wasn't 
until 1954, which was 30 years ago, is when I came to the islands and started a whole new career. a child of the depression and we came out to California and as I say in 1928 and so when this opportunity arose for me to go to South America with with the jazz orchestra I was very excited about that but prior to that time I'd just been playing in small groups picking up some extra money you know Mm -hmm. playing uh, fraternity affairs and uh weddings and engagements and things like that and made as much as five dollars every time we played which now <laughs> in 19 in the late 1920s well that uh, five dollars went a long way but when I went down to South America it probably was one of the most exciting things that ever happened in my life there were six of us the youngest was 18 and the oldest was 24 and I was 20 years old old at that time. So this was a great adventure, never, have, never having been away from home on my own. Uh, was this a, a, a certain period gig? Or well, we went down there originally. Hotel yes, we went down there to play at a hotel in Bogota, Colombia. It was called, you know, the Granada Hotel. And uh, we spent about seven months in Colombia. Uh, 
but what we played, we were typical of, of you know, the times in those days, the things that we played uh, that that were popular with the era of Bing Crosby and and uh, Satchmo, Satchmo, uh, Louis yeah. Armstrong, who we admired very, very much. Uh, we were typical of our day. Uh, it was a lot of showmanship, and it was good jazz of that period. And, of course, all being that young, uh, everyone was very spirited and had a lot of personality, and we went over very big. It was the big band era. The big band in those days that I recall was was uh, Guy Lombardo, um, of course, uh, Louis Armstrong, and that period, but this was l- before Benny Goodman became popular. So I'm really dating myself when I go back <laughs> to you know, about that time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, some of the things that that we did were, you know, uh, I cover the waterfront, I'm through with love, I don't know whether you remember that. Those very nostalgic uh, tunes, It Must Be True. Uh, a lot of the rhythm boys, you know, the, the Bing Crosby and the rhythm boys, some of his tunes, When the Blue of the Night Meets the Gold of the Day. And uh, Potatoes Are Cheaper, Now's the Time to Fall in Love. Remember, remember that? You wouldn't remember No, that, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> sing or just basically no basically play? I played the the piano and uh, I helped arrange mm-hmm. uh, we uh, we had to do uh, we had to make our own arrangements and everybody sort of doubled in brass so we had to develop our uh, the group around what we had to work with uh, which was great experience for me because part of t- I, I had never gotten experience like that before and then of course all being in my my age bracket, we had so much in common. But those were fun years. Then we freelanced our way down the West Coast, and uh, we played in places like Lima, Peru. Mm. And uh, some of the things were very exciting, and some of them were very funny, too. We were doing some stage uh, shows. That was in between pictures. The picture at that time was called Frankenstein. And I must have seen that about 12 times until I, I knew every line in the picture with uh, Boris Karloff, Karloff yeah. you remember? Well, they had one of these uh, old-fashioned uh, curtains. It wasn't exactly a curtain. It, was, it looked like a window shade, an enormous window shade that you rolled up. There were rollers, oh. uh, you know, that, that had sort of Venetian blind type of idea, but... It, it, like a movie screen type of thing, and then it would roll up. 
And uh, we were all set up and had the band set up there, and it was dark, you know. And the, the curtains, they started to roll up the curtain, and the drums were right in front. And the roller had a hook on it, and it caught on a drum. And as we were playing our overture, the, the whole set of drums went up. <laughs> well, you can imagine, I mean, uh, and here was Red, who was our drummer, was jumping up and down trying to get his drums down, and they crashed finally, and this whole set of drums crashed on the stage. <laughs> well, we got hysterical. We got to laughing. We just couldn't put on a show. I mean, and people were laughing, didn't know what was really happening. Did you compose any while yes, you were down there? Yes. Uh, I wrote a tune uh, at that time. It was called Playa Grande, which meant Playa Grande was a very famous resort area. And uh, I wrote this tune that I recorded in 1933 with the band. Because we had a pretty big band at that time. And this is one of the tunes that I recorded. It was called Playa Grande. And uh, this is, sounds kind of dated because this goes back quite a few years. At Playa Grande by the sea in 1954 you eventually came to the islands uh, I was at that time I was appearing with a trio in Eureka, California you heard the, the, the expression Eureka I found it you know <laughs> well, that was the last place I'd ever hoped to be in you know <laughs> ironically enough uh, the fellow that had the little trio. It was uh, his name was Tom Kenny, and it was with a great deal of I would say sorrow, but I mean a great deal of nostalgia that I was became aware that he passed away about this last May. Uh, he was the vice president of the American Federation of Musicians. He really went up a long, long way from those days, and uh, Tom had had the group at the time. I brought back. A lot of nostalgia. But I had a telegram, a cable, I should say, from Donna Beachcomber asking me if I, this was around Christmas, if I'd be interested in opening at his place on January 1st, 1954. And I had been recommended by a very dear friend of mine, Bill Howe, who was at that time playing piano at the Dagger Bar. 
and who moved over to the uh, Surfrider. So I said, well, why not, you know? So I signed a six-month contract, and I came over and played solo piano in a dagger bar, right? Where the Liberty House is now is where Donna Beachcombers used to be, you know, mm -hmm. it was right next to the old, what it now is called the International mm -hmm. Marketplace, right across the street from the... Um, Outrigger? The Outrigger. And that particular area around the banyan tree and all, that was a parking area. And all the area that was... A, where bungalows, the uh, Moana bungalows, was a jungle. And, uh, boy, if those bungalows could talk, I mean, there'd be quite a few stories that could be told. <laughs> but uh, I was very fortunate because I came there at a, at a period where things were just starting, you know, in Waikiki. Uh, and so I saw the development, and, of course, Don and I uh, have remained good friends throughout the years, you know, and, who incidentally is doing a story, that he's doing a biog on his life, which ought to be fabulous, you know. Well, his name isn't really Don Beachcomber. His it? name was Don Beach. <laughs> Actually, it was another, but he adopted the name Don mm -hmm. Beach. And uh, so my association uh, carried on for a number of years, quite a number of years with him. But when I went there... Uh, I, I fulfilled my contract, and I went back to the mainland. And uh, I, I played some engagements. I was in Las Vegas at the time. Uh, Don, because I was fascinated with Hawaii. I liked the lifestyle. I spent a good part of my time on a beach, and uh, I learned how to surf. And uh, it was a fun, it was a fun time. And I mean, a lot of the people that, that used to hang out, in front, that we always hang out in front of the old Moana Hotel. Later became, some of them became quite famous. Uh, there were a couple of boys from the Kingston Trio that were there all the time. Uh, there was Dave Gard and uh, Bob Shane. And then this young man who uh, later married uh, Smith, what was his name? They married um, Anne Margaret, Roger Smith. And he sat around playing a ukulele and singing all of these silly songs, you know, in all John. It was a fun time, you know. I had returned in late 54, see, and uh, I landed a job working at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, and uh, I talked Jack Fishbeck into giving me a job to play at the old surf room.
you know, in those days, uh, they still had that 10% excise taxes that if somebody sang, you you automatically were assessed 10% of your drink. And, and a lot of people didn't like that at all, you know. So I suggested that if they had me instead of a singing trio, uh, they wouldn't, people wouldn't have to pay a 10% tax. So that was a stroke of genius on my part, you know. He got the message. So I went to work for him, but but as a result of my going to work, I displaced the Kalima brothers. And of course, I got to know them quite well, you know, in those days. But, you know, good old Jesse and, and Honey Kalima. I guess they were a little put out about me taking their job. I mean, re, replacing the quartet. So, uh, but it was a competitive in those days, I mean, if you wanted to survive. Well, after about six months, uh, I uh, was approached by Donna Beachcomber at that time if I would like to come back. And I said, I would on one condition if I could form a trio. I was getting a little bored just playing the piano. I always had this strange feeling that every time I played in a surf room that looking out at Diamond Head, I felt that I was in a picture frame and I was part of the of the surroundings of the hotel. Now, curiously enough, uh, they wouldn't give me any publicity or anything when I went to work for them. And uh, I only worked, uh, I think, uh, from 5 to 8, I played the cocktail hour. But our agreement was that I was off for one hour to have my dinner in the Monarch Room and it cost me one dollar had a choice of menu of anything I wanted Ooh. so actually I only worked a total of two hours and uh, and if I took a 15 30 minute break uh, for the two hours so I wound up by playing about an hour and a half right <laughs> uh, but I had an offer to uh, to play in the evening at the place called the South Seas. Now, now you wouldn't remember. Would you remember the old South Seas? It was down on Calicoa. And there was some very nice acts. We used to come near that time. Those were the days of Lowy Chai's and the South Seas. And, mm-hmm. and they offered me $175 for four hours' work. And $175 in 1955 was quite a bit of money. And I was only making like $125. Uh, the other doing playing the other thing with plus a meal. Now you put the whole thing together. If I have a plane, that would be two hundred and that would be three hundred dollars I'd be making. But I had an idea, you know. So I approached Jack Fishbeck, who was the general manager, and I said, "Mr. Fishbeck, you know I've been offered a job, considerably more money than what you're paying me. But I feel that I would like to continue on at your hotel." Because it is the most prestigious hotel in Hawaii. And uh, if you would give me a little publicity and presentation, I would like to stay on and I won't accept this other job. And I showed him the contract. You know, all I had to do was sign it, you know. Well, he was sort of a little puzzled at first. And then he uh, very impressed, apparently. So he called the, his, uh, the PR man, the public relation man, in, and he told him the situation. They said, uh, Denny here said he would like to stay on and if we would give him some publicity. Do you think that's possible? And he says, why? I said, I don't see any reason why not. 
So I took the contract and tore it up. And I think that was one of the smartest moves I ever made. Because had I gone to work at just another cabaret or something, that would have been the end of that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I figured that this was a good anchor place for me to play in. So now they started giving me some publicity and presentation. They put my picture out there in front of the room there and on the menus, the, this beautiful menu, and I said, appearing uh, from 5 to 8 in the, the surf room, and 5 to 8 presents Martin Denny. See? So that was sort of the way, it sort of edged my way into that, and people started to become aware of my name. And at that time, as I say, I was approached by Don mm-hmm. if I wanted to come back to Donna Beach Commerce. And I said, well, if I could get a trio together. Well, I wound up getting a guy that worked at the Hala Kalani. That was, uh, his name was Arthur Lyman. And I think he was about 21 or 22 years old at the time. Good-looking boy and very talented and very shy. And the other boy uh, worked for this... Uh, he was an accountant. Uh, he worked for the... The territory, because that time it was the territory before he became a state. John Kramer, who currently is now the vice president of Bates and Halsey, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, of course all the servicemen heard the music, and this place was packed every night. I mean, it was, was just Arthur tr- on vibe. Arthur, and uh, Arthur doubled up and played stand-up drums when I was taking a solo, and uh, John Kramer playing the bass. See. And, uh, of course, Arthur was extremely talented and everything. And so we were playing straightforward jazz, you know. And <laughs> it caught on real big. So that was a real fun period. And then, of course, about that time, uh, I met my present wife, uh, June, and we got married in 56, a year later. But uh, those, those were the formative years but I still hadn't arrived at a style, see. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd been there, oh, 
we were there approximately a year with the group. And meantime, Henry J. Kaiser opened up what is now the Hawaiian Hilton Hawaiian Village. And Henry J. used to come in every night to listen to Alfred Apaka. See, I played in front, and Alfred played in the back. We were the hottest thing uh, on in Waikiki at this point. Doing what kind of numbers? Ones. What were you doing? Well, uh, we didn't have any style to arrive at, and we had to work <laughs> up a style. repertoire. So we got a book of George Shearing's books. He had a bunch of books there. And we sounded more George Shearing than George did. I mean, you know, I got to know George eventually, and we had a lot of laughs about that. Henry J. took all the top talent and personnel away from Donna Beachcombers. And there was something that Don was furious about later, you know, and I couldn't blame him because Henry milked his brain, got all his ideas, and he used to come in here every night. And uh, so they got Alfred away. Not only that, but they took his head bartender <laughs> And uh, who knew all the drinks. Mm -hmm. they, they took his mater day. Uh, they took everyone in a key position, and they took all the, the top 
Hawaiian musicians from the Moana Hotel. And Alfred became the entertainment director. And, of course, about then that, they opened what is, they became the Tapper Room. Now, they were planning on opening a new room called the Shell Bar, which was right opposite the Tapper Room. Uh, my contract uh, was up for renewal, and I asked for an increase for the other fellows. And I was making like $300 a week, in the, and, you know, that was a lot of money in those days, you know. And I had myself a, a, a plaid top convertible, uh, I forgot the make of it, it was a, some English import. <laughs> well, I was living high off the hog, you know. Now, the boys uh, were making like $119 a week. Now, that was a lot of money, and, and you know, they weren't complaining about that. But they, I felt that they should have an increase. Well, the manager at the time uh, couldn't see that, of uh, me giving him an increase. And I had, signed, I had the, the contract, all I had to do was sign it, you know. And I, I felt a little put out that here we are doing a great business for him, and at least they could have given my boys a raise. So I picked up the phone and called uh, Alfred, and I said, Alfred, would you be interested in the group? And he said, yes. And I said, well, my contract is up, and if you'd like to, we can come over and work for you. He says, fine. He says, I'll be in tonight with the old man, meaning Henry J. Mm -hmm. So he came in that evening with the entire entourage. Now, in the meanwhile, before that happened, uh, someone came, to me, came in one evening and said, there's a local boy in the audience. Uh, would you let him sit in? He plays bongos, and he's real good. And I said, well, as a rule, we don't permit anyone to sit in unless we've heard him. But I guess it'd be all right. So this was a young fellow. His name was Augie Cologne. And he sat in with us and played the bongos. And I asked him what he wanted to play. He says, oh, many things. So I said, we'll play something Latin. So he played a Latin tune. Well, he, he just brought the house down. He, he had such a tremendous personality. And he played with such great feeling and spirit that, uh, you know, that it, people just loved him, you know. I, I signed a contract. Uh, the old man, when I mean Henry J., came in with this entire entourage, and they were very impressed with the group. And as I say, all you were doing was playing jazz or ballads, and it was just a nice little trio, nothing extraordinary, really. And I persuaded Don to hire uh, Augie. And I said, I'll help you replace my group if you wish. And uh, he was appreciative of that. And we, so we parted good friends. And I did get a group to replace me that spent about four years, an excellent group. But they, they didn't know what to do with Augie. They, they, he just didn't fit in. He was like a, a fifth wheel, you know. <laughs> and Don was a little uh, upset about the fact that uh, he had... He didn't know what to do with them, you know. Now, meantime, we opened the shell bar. By this time, I had talked Alfred into letting me get it to to increase the budget and to get Augie Cologne. So Augie came back. It was at that time we introduced the exotic sounds. 
I started to develop other things, uh, other songs that were Hawaiian things or the imaginative things that were reminiscent of the jungle. And then we started, we had so many of the different ethnic groups that people would come in all the time there. You know, that what is Hawaii today? Mm-hmm. I mean, that we can think of, we had, you know, Japanese, uh, Filipino, uh, Puerto Rican. And of course, our group, uh, you realize later on, I mean, we had all the ethnic groups. of, And so the local audiences that came in were, were very sympathetic. The fact that I used, you know, we're all local boys and they loved them. Well, I started to develop the group along the lines of by using sounds. Uh, like, for instance, now, uh, I like the feeling of uh, of glass chimes when the wind would go through it. It would sort of give it a little oriental feeling, a little uh, exotic sound, you know, rustling of the glass. And then we added bamboo chimes, you know. And, uh, of course, with the sounds, uh, the, the combination of the piano and the vibes and the sound, we, we blended in such a manner... It, it had a Hawaiian feel without using ukuleles or, uh, steel. or or steel guitar. It became a whole sound in itself. And, of course, the Latin rhythm gave it a little movement. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't just something that that was placid. It had a little excitement to it. And, of course, we had a little jazz feeling towards the whole thing, you know. And then I started acquiring little instruments uh, that we adapted and built little arrangements on them. And, of course, all of us were a bunch of hams, especially Augie, you know, and everything, and carry on. He was very flamboyant. Somebody had given him a, these Cuban outfits with the puffed sleeves and the white pants that came up there. And he just looked like a peacock in all his glory, you know, and he'd play those those bongos and later added on the conga drums, you know, and he really put on a show all by himself.
I got to know a lot of uh, pilots and stewardesses and everything who would bring back these little instruments from the Far East. They would bring different types of gongs and uh, <laughs> exolophones and all sorts of little gadgets. And at one period, they brought over a, a snake charmer's flute. You've seen those with the gourd, you mm-hmm. know. You see the snake f- f- charmers. So, uh, author, you know, uh, rather I should say, uh, Kramer, you know, John Kramer, used to play flute, you know, and picked up on it and was able to play it. It only had five tones, and it was like blowing into a bagpipe and, and, and then playing this thing, which had a very eerie sound, you know, snake charmer's flute. Well, I wrote a tune. It was called Cobra, was the name of it, and I built it around this thing. So I had a basket. Uh, we had a phony snake in it <laughs> and a nylon cord that went up in the hook on the ceiling, you know, and this basket. And uh, so we'd play this thing. The snake would come out, and Augie would strip to the waist and put a turban on his head. <laughs> And he's playing his bongos, and the snake is swaying back and forth, and his head is going back and forth, and, and uh, John Kramer is playing this thing, and then I would manipulate this nylon cord so the snake would move around. little we started to develop a sound the sound of the and then added all these funny little sounds and instruments now a lot of people that thought those are pretty weird you know pretty far out actually they weren't uh, they they were imaginative at the time and some of the the earlier things that we did uh, still hold up I mean they're uh, it's a little part of Americana. You, know, and you did three albums on that exotica theme, huh? Well, there were three that I did, but I did about 38 LPs, you know. And I would say about the first 10 or 12 were along the exotic, you know, we were billed as the exotic sounds of Martin Denny. I spent 1956 at um, Hawaiian Village. Now, about we had been there about ten months or so when I was approached by one of the big managements I handled people like Lawrence Welk and Liberace and some of the top artists in the country and and we were recommended by Bucky Buckwack, who is now the uh, who was one of our fans uh, you know I can't begin to tell you I mean the number of people who used to come in and listen to us that we cultivated you know the they were doing about that period of time they were they were shooting South Pacific and uh, the members of the cast used to come in to listen to us and Francis E. Brown and Winona Love and and uh, and as you know Winona Love and Francis were you know Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Hawaii <laughs> uh, 
Did you do YPO for him and songs like oh, that? Oh, every time uh, we did that, you know, it's like playing the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, he'd, <laughs> he'd get up and take his hat off, and <laughs> he spot, you know, just to deviate just a moment, he sponsored us on our first when I made my debut on the on the uh, on the mainland. He sponsored us to play for the Bing Crosby Open Golf Tournament Party in Pebble Beach, and he told Bing Crosby that. If he didn't let us play, that he was going to cancel out his big party of the year, which he would have done. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we played there, and I, rec- I distinctly recall, I mean, here are all these great sports figures, and Bob Hope and Phil Harris. Uh, Phil Alice Faye was the gal that I was trying to think of about Alice used to come in there. And uh, so just about everybody who was in show business that time. But I d- remember playing YPO, and... Francis was seated, got up. And so the whole audience had to get up. I mean, we got a standing ovation. <laughs> but, but you know, I did, when I did the recording, uh, I thought, uh, I gave him credit for it, Francis E. Brown. Uh, so his name is on it. So. Mm-hmm. You know, ironically, you know, we were very dear friends throughout the years. And now currently, I, you know, I, I play on the Big Island and at the Manalani Bay Hotel. Now, all that property there was his. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it was, I guess it was just uh, meant to be that that I opened mm-hmm. that hotel, a gorgeous, beautiful hotel. And uh, so I feel the spirit mm-hmm. every time I play golf. And if I hit a, if I hit one, this happens quite frequently, I must tell you this. So every time I hit a ball on a lava and it bounces back on a, on a f- freeway, I always say, take off my cap and I say thank you Uncle Francis because <laughs> I, I still feel his spirit is there
You're listening to the Heritage Series and the exotic sounds of Martin Denny on Station Aloha. Presented by Bank of Hawaii. This land of Aloha. You are in tune with the spirit of Aloha. We are Hawaiian Radio, KCCN, Honolulu. 1420, Station Aloha. And now back for part two of the Martin Denny story on the Heritage Series. We made our debut and played a, at a new hotel that had just opened up in Las Vegas. It was very cold in the wintertime. And the first time the boys had ever been on a mainland and wearing these Aloha shirts, it was got to be a little cold, too cold for them. Just before we left, uh, I recorded, or partly recorded, our first album on what was then called Hi-Fi at Webley Edwards' old studio. And uh, that was just uh, the equipment that we used at that time was brand new. And I only had three hours to put a whole album together, which we did in one sitting. Uh Strangely enough, that first record that we did, which we later re-recorded in a stereo in Hollywood, became uh, one of our biggest hits. It was called Exotica. And uh, it also it contained uh, the exotic sounds of what, the, what we call the exotic sounds of Martin Denny. But I, I didn't I had the slightest idea that it was going to be the hit that it was. It. I received a silver record that I think was initially sold 400,000 LPs and then later they did a single on Quiet Village which came out of that, that which gave me a gold record it sold over a million singles mm-hmm. then later did another LP called Quiet Village which sold about over 750,000 LPs My so there was a period of time when I was number one on the charts. As a matter of fact, Exotica was number one on the charts for 13, ex- 13 consecutive weeks. We're talking Billboard, right? Billboard, Cashbox, and Variety.
future looked very bright and I signed up with a with a management so we decided that we were going to leave at the end of our contract and of course Henry J. Kaiser was very upset about this and he gave me a hard time uh, of course that's that's a thing of the past and uh, but in spite of it we we went on and uh, went to the mainland and made our first tour we were a very big hit, and I came back in 1950 on this tour. We were touring in 1957, and I went back to work at Donna Beachcombers. And about that time, towards September, uh, author Lyman told me that he was going to leave the group and form his own group, took John. And much to my surprise, uh, he went back into the Hawaiian village to play for Henry J. Kaiser hmm. who uh, had made a point of saying that he was going to <coughs> continue the sounds that that we had introduced and so that was one of the stipulations that Arthur had to continue along those same lines so we, in a way we were competing we, we mm-hmm. were doing the same type of sounds and uh, there wasn't too good blood between us at the time and uh, of course, since those are the days that passed many, many years, and uh, today we've mellowed, and Arthur and I have a lot of aloha for one another. But it was tough going in those days. <clears throat> but I continued on and uh, with my stylings, and later got into uh, a different of a pop category. After about my first ten or twelve albums, I started getting into pop. I had a big record called "A Taste of Honey." Mm-hmm. And I started continuing along those lines of playing uh, pop jazz. Well, I did a total of about 38 LPs.
during the period of those years, we traveled all over the country. I mean, I played just about every major city, and we would spend as much as 12 weeks at a time, and then we would spend 12 weeks in the, on location in the islands. And, of course, my boys uh, traveled with me. In fact, one of the boys had three of his children were born while he was on a road. It was Harvey Ragsdale. Now, um, the group changed then once Arthur left. So you had had to form a new group. I had that to, well, I didn't exactly. Well, I had to. I got Harvey Ragsdale to, to replace John. And then I went to the mainland uh, and I got Julius Wechter. Now, Julius had a tremendous talent. And he was quite young. I think he was only 21 years old at the time. Uh, when he joined me, uh, probably one of the most talented musicians I've ever had, and played a very important part in the development of my first 10 or 12 records. Currently, uh, later on, he after he had left me after a number of years, he formed his own group, the Baja Marimba Band, uh, which he was very successful with, and he also was associated with the, with, uh, the Tijuana Brass, with uh, Herb Albert. Herb Albert. And uh, he uh, participated in all those recordings. Uh, so uh, then, uh, then I added. Now, of course, Augie stayed on. Augie Cologne stayed on. He was the mainstay of the group. And then I added a drummer at this point, Frankie Kim. And so I really developed a style at that time. And we were very hot in stereo because we were the first ones that came out with a separation, a complete separation. And when Exotica. Uh, was released, people were were astounded of the the different variety of sounds that they would get, and it became an enormous hit. Uh, and uh, so, it was more or less a catalyst for in the recording business as well as in uh, selling uh, in the sales of uh, of uh, amplifiers and and uh, stereo equipment. Mm-hmm. And modestly, I'd say that we probably were responsible for over $25 million of sales. And, and, and that because they used our recordings as demos. They were played oh, all over great. the country. And the popularity of the group primarily started because some of our greatest fans were service personnel who came in to listen to us. And when they were transferred to different bases and everything, they took these records along with them and played them. And so... Our, our records were played all over the you know, different parts of the United States. I even went on to the North Pole on the SS Nautilus when it made its first historic journey. Literally, our things were played from the Antarctic up to the Arctic, up to the North Pole.
and along the way, I helped. Uh, I, I became the A and R man for Liberty Records in the Islands, and produced uh, records for such artists as uh, Ethel Azama, The Invitations, Chick Floyd, and Augie Cologne. I like to think that I helped contribute a sound that became synonymous with the Islands. Uh, I say, I don't think I'm being immodest when I say that I probably have sold more LPs than all the current artists in Hawaii put together. I estimate that uh, we that we did in excess of over four million LPs. Hmm. Uh, and I must admit that we had some bizarre effects, but I think it's pretty mild considering what they're doing today with the synthesizers. And uh, But what is remarkable is that all those we didn't dub in any of those. We we just performed them just as they sound mm-hmm. and did it all at one time. And we didn't do any splicing, which, you know, today is uh, everything is dubbed in, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but when I listened objectively to some of the earlier things I did, they are still as creative today as they were then, listenable. And a lot of it was mood music to a great extent. So there's no reason why it shouldn't be around for a long time. really has no date. No, it's it, it's huh? not dated. Uh, I still, just recently, you know, I just came back from vacation and uh, I visited Capitol Records, who now owns what is now Liberty Records. And uh, they uh, are releasing a number of my things on tapes uh, some of the highlights, and what is more exciting is that they're planning on going into a program of mail order mm. uh, cassettes, and I've given them permission to uh, use several of my things on on these uh, uh, mail order things that you see on TV. You know where mm-hmm. they advertise uh, different artists. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I signed a contract with a, with a publishing firm in Japan. And it was a popular group called the uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra that recorded one of my tunes. Uh, they they'd heard it in one of my older albums, Quad Village. It was called Firecracker, and they did a synthesized version. And of all things, they did a a uh, disco. It was an enormous hit in Japan. Uh, it was number one on the charts, and I received considerable. Uh, royalties as a result of that. It was also a big hit in England and on the continent. I still get royalties from places that I just got one check the other day from foreign play that ranged all the way from South Africa to England, France, Germany, Israel, uh, Ireland. I don't know. It just goes on. So my music is still very popular. I get. I used to get a lot of play in Australia and New Zealand. It has even been performed. I get. I used to get fan mail from New Guinea, Africa, from you know school children. Mm-hmm. Of course, my music uh, 
uh, some of the earlier things have been used. Uh, more people tell me this uh, when they were going to school. Have been used in aquacades and choreography. Um, have even been used in uh, steam baths, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> to lend that jungle feel. <laughs> I was reading a, a magazine, I think it was Time magazine, about an expose that they'd had about these. It was the big thing in Washington, D.C. They had these. Uh, sauna baths and everything. A lot of the congressmen and everything would frequent them and everything, and they would be lulled by the exotic sounds of Martin Denny. And that broke me up. I thought, <laughs> well, I've really arrived, you know. <laughs> Time magazine, that's funny, you know. Your latest album is From Maui with Love. Is that the last one you I did? I produced that when I was at the Weston Wailea Hotel. It wasn't meant for a national release, although it is being released on the mainland. It was pri- primarily for just the hotel consumption, uh, Maui mm-hmm. consumption. But I did, uh, there's one thing that I did, I had more requests to do it. I do a concert arrangement of tiny bubbles of different composers. This all came about some years ago. I did a, a concert for Jack DeMello uh, for, at the at the, uh, the Blaisdell Auditorium. Uh, and this was sponsored by the Cherry Festival, the uh, Japanese Junior Chamber of Commerce. And uh, he wanted me to perform on this particular program. It was a big symphony orchestra that he had and a lot of very fine artists, you know. He said, well, so he, when he came over to the house, you know, I ran through a couple of things on a piano, and I have beautiful Baldwin Casa Grand at home. And he said, you know, nobody's ever really heard you play classical music. And he said, that would be something a little different. He said, why don't you take something and do an arrangement on it? And, and they, I said, well, like, what? You know, and he said, well, how about Tiny Bubbles? And I said, you got to be kidding, you know. <laughs>
I've been playing professionally over 50 years. And uh, a lot of things that I still play today are you, I consider still contemporary. I have always tried to stay abreast of, of what's happening, you know. When did you realize Hawaii was going to be your home? I fell in love with the place immediately when I first came over. It was something just like a magic, you know. I love the lifestyle, and I still do. Uh, to me, the best way that I can describe Hawaii is instant living. Mm -hmm. From the moment you get up in the morning, you walk outside of your home with a pair of shorts on and a shirt and walk into the garden. I watch the sunset come up. I can look out from my home. I, my home is on Black Point Road facing Cocoa Hen, and I have an incomparable view. And I never never tire of it because I watch the the surf come over the reef changes throughout the day, and it's all palm lined in the mountains. And at night it's all lit up. Surprising, when I first moved in there 25 years ago. I fell in love with Black Point. I said, if I ever made enough money, this is where I wanted to live. So that was one of my dreams that came true. And I think, uh, I say this facetiously, but I think three of uh, my accomplishments, uh, one of them was that um, I had a gold record, my first gold record. Two, I, I caught a 186-pound blue marlin in Kona and won first prize. And I have, have that bugger Mounted on, on wall. my wall of my den. <laughs> and uh, I had a hole-in-one last April 21st, the uh, mm -hmm. golf, which I play a lot. I love to play golf, and that's my hobby. Mm -hmm. And uh, I play about... Because I work at the Montalani Bay Hotel, which I opened February 1st, 1983. And I've been the year and a half. I had, there was a price that I had to pay for it, and I guess to enjoy the the end results mm -hmm. and uh, I was very very fortunate more so than a lot of other musicians but I always like to say I paid my dues along the way uh, I still feel very vital and still am creative in many ways um, I'm uh, if Phil Harris once they asked him how old are you and he said uh well, I'm, I'm six over par. In my case, I'm one over par.
Young kids today, Martin, want to get into the musical field. Any words of encouragement for them? Music is terribly important, just as the arts. Without it, you know, it'd be a bunch of savages. Uh, I think if we didn't have some of those refinements. And the Hawaiian people, especially, are, just love music, and you you can see how it reflects. Uh, I don't consider myself uh, an expert in the sense I don't play traditional things. Most of the things that I did perform were wahapahali things, a few chants, but gave it a different treatment. And uh, all I can tell as young people is that, you know, you don't, you know, the old adage, you don't start at the top, you know. But you should have a solid foundation to learn how to, learn how to uh, learn a little more about music and experience it on something that money can't buy or any is experience playing with others and listening and participating in it and don't be a dropout is there um one song have you yeah. written that song yet martin denny a very dear friend of mine who just recently celebrated his 90th birthday he was is alex anderson and uh to me, he, he typifies uh, Hawaii and uh, what a man in his lifetime, the, the many wonderful things he's done within his lifetime. And uh, we collaborated on a, on a tune that we wrote together. He wrote the lyrics. Now, strangely enough, the, the tune was called, I originally wrote it was called For Maui With Love. And we decided that it didn't have enough popular appeal as far as the title is concerned because it's only limited to the to Maui mm-hmm. so I said well why don't we come up with a with a lyric or something that would be more suitable for universal taste we finally came up with a title called Magic of Love There's no such thing as retirement uh, for me. If I can still perform, and I intend to as long as I can. The man whose music struck just the right chord with listeners all around the world, Martin Denny on the Heritage Series, stories of the careers and contributions of Hawaii's foremost musical artists told in their own words and music. 
Now, for the Honolulu Skylark, this is Phil Upton inviting you to join us on Sunday, August 26th, for the next in the Heritage Series, presented on Station Aloha by Bank of Hawaii as part of their commitment to the people of these islands. Thank you.